0: and you're listening to Quotidian Musings. Every once in a while, we'll unravel topics more suited for evening pontificating than your high school classroom. Episodes flow from solo exploration of ideas to interviews incorporating external perspectives. We will leave you at the end of each discussion with some final takeaways and a short and sweet book slash TV slash movie recommendation. Today, we'll be talking about Echo Chambers of Apathy. For some context, I'm graduating from high school this year as a member of the class of 2020. And as I bid farewell to my secondary school days, we received many well wishes from teachers and peers saying that each of us will go off to do incredible things. And one thing I noticed is that this feeling of I have to do something is pretty much ingrained in us. My friends studying international relations at college all like to talk about leaving a legacy. They dream big and think about what they can contribute to in a few years, what they can be known for when they are gone. I'm not so sure where I want to go next or where my college journey will take me. I heard that plans change a lot in those four or more years, but I keep on thinking about where I should go and where I could make a difference. Perhaps I should go into education? I thought about shooting for becoming a teacher or professor, but how many minds could I truly change in some way or make a difference? Education can be selected for by state, involuntarily by monetary restrictions, or otherwise. My privileged liberal mindset will probably resonate mostly with a similar crowd. I spent 12 years of my life in a liberal international school. My beliefs were shaped by the classes I took, the classmates who share the same opinions, the teachers who both echo and challenge what we think we know. If I were to become a teacher, what difference would I make in broader senses of IR, regional geopolitical tensions, or even climate change awareness and progress? How can I make a difference when almost everyone is stuck in their own little echo chambers of thought? An article from the philosophy website Aeon titled why it's as hard to escape an echo chamber as it is to flee a cult, defines an echo chamber as, quote, a social structure from which other relevant voices have been actively discredited, end quote. (laughs) Take the polarization of the left and the right in the states as a simple example. Let's just look at the language of the blurb of a book titled, Radicals, Resistance, and Revenge, the Left's Plot to Remake America, by Judge Jeanine Pirro. It declares that, quote, Donald Trump's presidency has been under siege by the left. That the, quote, far-left progressives and socialists will go on to destroy the America we love and remake it into something unrecognizable, borderless, socialist, and free of any moral compass. That, quote, only Donald Trump and his army of patriots can stop this radical plan. The left definitely has its faults and crimes like any other political position, I suppose, or political party, but can we just take a look at the language in here? Quote, Under Siege exaggerates political tensions into full-on warfare. The phrase destroy the America we love angers patriots with the declaration of pronoun we and the aggression of the word destroy. The word socialist draws on decades of sheer hatred associated with the word, but not the values and policies or intentions of contemporary versions of what might have brought relief to thousands. The phrase, quote, only Donald Trump and his army of patriots can stop this radical plan is a call to action, and it's almost suggesting that if you, the reader, have any pride in your country, the states, you must oppose the left. This is perhaps a cherry-picking example, but I don't think this is the only place where rhetoric, rhetoric has been manipulated for pathos purposes only, on both the left and right. Presidential debates are saturated with logical fallacies, turning, into, turning them into pathetic finger-porting games of blame. We are so entrenched in our beliefs, our own echo chambers, that anyone who disagrees with us is automatically suspicious. When you're in discussion with others, how do you you react to someone voicing an opinion you agree with versus someone suggesting a point of view you wouldn't ever consider? Do you respond the same way? Or do you approach one position with a little bit more suspicion than the other? Technological advancements only make this worse, as we well know, with social media like Instagram and Facebook parroting back at us what we like and what we believe in. My audience is probably a certain niche of people too, looking for a certain kind of content, angled in a certain kind of way. In a world swamped by hyper-individualism, it's disorienting to look up and see hundreds of people walking about around us, and to recognize that each and every single one of them have lives just as important as yours is yourself. They have their personal struggles, they have their own family problems, they have their own friend breakups, etc. The dictionary of obscure sorrows calls this feeling sonder, and it's described as the following. This is quoted directly from the website. Sonder, noun, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherited craziness. An epic story that continues invisibly around you, like an anthill sprawling deep underground, with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once, as an extra, sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. We are so involved in ourselves and ourselves only that we become intolerant to any views that may conflict with ours. We approach those in our echo chambers with warm arms while we approach opposition outside of our echo chambers with caution. I think this phenomenon potentially leads to a degree of apathy. And in an episode from, from the podcast, Pod Save the World, highly recommend by the way, Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright talked about this occurring in young people, manifesting as them asking why they should get involved in politics or anything at all. If these echo chambers are so unconsciously ingrained in people, how could we affect change anywhere? To delve deeper into this conundrum, let's head off to two interviews. First, we'll be talking to Mr. Brady Riddle, a poet, high school English instructor, and model United Nations director who bears a striking resemblance to Tony Stark. After that, we'll meet Paul, Mr. Paul Harris, a South African photographer, writer, and high school English teacher who dons an all-black wardrobe and acquires seasonal fruit obsessions. Hi Mr. Riddle! Today's episode on Echo Chambers led me to you because you're the high school MUN director. And in one of our our school's own MUN conferences two years ago, the theme was Hear the Echo Chamber. Would you mind sharing any thoughts or recollections on that theme and how now post-conference it applies to your life today?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And thank you for interviewing me, Cynthia. This is is an awesome experience and an honor and a privilege. Um, So when we started deciding on that year's conference theme. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, we had... Uh, the Secretariat had a bunch of great ideas, and then Tiffany Chan came up with the idea of... Because at the time, there was so much political rhetoric volleying about, and, and it, it just seemed like it had grown more and more... Um, Not just in the United States, but around the world over the past decade, but specifically and especially over the past couple of years, um, because it wasn't just the election of Donald Trump that started this more conservative movement around the world where um, um, there was this almost propagandizing repetition of uh, ideas to try and create some confirmation bias Um, I think social media also played a huge part in creating this sense of confirmation bias or or echo chamber Um, and 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 so that that we immediately fell into this conversation and then Tiffany Chan uh, getting back to her she said but don't you see a lot of this is is repeated it's an echo from problems and and concerns in the past and so we started working with this idea of echo chamber at multiple levels. And then she said, uh, and she was, st- she was so embarrassed when she said this, but she, it reminded her of this children's book that she had read about a bat, uh, about bats in a cave, and how it was one bat's responsibility to tell a story to the whole cave at night. And so the cave remembered the story and kind of echoed. And I think that's the name of the title of the book is Echo Chamber. And, and it echoes the names, of the, echoes these stories again and again and again as a way of memory, but how um, much of, of the world today, at least humanity, uh, has kind of twisted that idea of an echo chamber into um, only hearing what they want to hear and not listening to things they possibly need to hear, like um, um, the the threats of uh, radical global climate change um, uh, um, and the effects those, those uh, changes have on the environment in, in different ways, kind of like the perpetuation of, of viruses um, and the, the problems we're beginning to see in the ocean. I mean, one, one example of this echo chamber would be something along the lines of, I remember in the 80s, uh, it was the depletion of the ozone layer, and uh, then all of a sudden we fixed it. But then all of a sudden here's this echo of an environmental concern, like um, increasing ocean temperatures and melting of of uh, um, polar ice caps, and so these are forms of echo chamber as well. So um, we, we 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 approached that phrase in a variety of ways. Because it's more than just settling into your own little social media um, community where you hear everyone saying the same thing and, it, and and you don't see a broader view of issues.
0: Cool. In a world where um, everyone grows up in echo chambers of their own from the way they're brought up to the schools that they go to, to the education that they acquire, do you think it's realistically possible to quote unquote break free or listen to echo chambers?
1: You know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, that's, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I try to do as an educator, and I know, um, I, know I, I fault at it frequently because I, I express some of my political views, um, and not meaning to, but especially in today's U.S. political environment, it's really, 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 really hard to avoid doing that. Um, but what I try to do is get students to think for themselves. And the more, that, the more they can question questionable news and from questionable news sources and uh, research beyond their comfort level, Go into other information sources that are credible, that are reliable, um, the more factual based, uh, that don't offer as much bias. Uh, now you're teaching them to to be uh, literate distillers of truth, and I think um, if more schools approach education. In that regard, I I think there is a way um, we can begin to um, chip away, so to speak, at at the at the walls of this echo chamber. I know that that's what in my planning teams here, uh, we try to get students to think. We try to get them to ask questions with every piece of information that they are are presented with. And over the past five years at the school, the curriculum has incredibly changed Um, in that same regard being a more global society um we still have our own biases and um it turn. I, I think part of the human condition is judgment of others and uh part of this there's there's an inherent drive to find a community a like-minded community and the problem with today's world as um political divisiveness becomes more prevalent it's it's working against global mindedness which is uh, the antithesis of um political polarization and nationalism and so it, it's it's really hard that that's a challenging question to answer um i want to say you know, rainbows and unicorns. Yes, we'll teach the next generation to to think for themselves, but as they go out into the world, uh, there are pitfalls and traps in society at every turn where you can fall into a sense of complacency and comfort. And then you're feeding your own little echo chamber and and you start to uh, create a sense of um, rigidity or closed-mindedness. And and it's just always having that hunger to not believe immediately what's in front of you, but to look just beyond it to see if what's in front of you is real is what I hope more people work toward. Especially um, if anything over the past three years three and a half years of American politics should teach us is to do that. Because for a long time, under the past presidents, a lot of people have believed everything. And so uh, there's an upness and downness in, in, in the way we felt about different presidents and it created this divisive environment we currently live in. But when a political party can persuade a demographic of people just enough to create a following, almost a cult-like following, that's when the world begins to get dangerous. And it's not just in the United States. You see it in Poland. You see it in other nations right now where uh, there's just enough influence of a twisting of the truth, um, a manipulation of numbers, or just flat out lies and denials and a a deflection of responsibility and enough people support that person based on personality or uh, some perception of um, empathy. And so there are a lot of obstacles to overcome in order to answer that question
0: talk about this uh, contradiction or like um, divergence between uh, closed-mindedness versus global-open-mindedness and i was just thinking about how we in our own groups, i guess, uh, versus um, this us and them mentality, mm. um, if we constantly Um, how how do we engage in a conversation with um, people who don't necessarily want to discuss with us, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, (laughs) There are some people you can't engage with in conversation because they don't want to listen. Their truths are what they see immediately in front of them, and they don't wanna hear about your experience. When I first moved overseas in 2005, and I moved to the Middle East, in the middle of the American war in Iraq, um, and I came back to tell my friends just how incredible the country of oman was and and how i'd found this surf spot there with with a wave that broke uh, up to a kilometer long and and how i was the only person out and and the people are so friendly and the food is delicious and then going to sri lanka and going and riding elephants and and going to thailand and being able to camp in the desert all these wonderful fantastic amazing things and how the middle east is not the way it's perceived on television My own mother told me I was naive and that I was jaded because I only saw a limited view of this world she only saw on television. (laughs) And many other family members and friends said the same thing. They don't want to hear about this life I was living. They didn't want to even try to relate to it. And it wasn't until a couple of friends of mine, very, very close friends of mine, who one of them told me, really, stop talking about your experiences overseas or we're not hanging out anymore. Until he started traveling and then beginning to see what I saw. I just recently had a conversation with him and he thoroughly apologized for making that statement. He still remembered it from 2006 and he apologized because he gets it. But I'm talking about the country I'm from, the United States, where maybe 20% of the population even owns a passport. I taught students in Texas and in North Carolina who had hardly even left their county, much less their state. I taught students in Galveston, Texas that hadn't even left the island of Galveston their whole lives, and they were teenagers. They hadn't even gone across the bridge to Houston. That is the type of culture that's almost impossible to penetrate to share experiences because they have such limited views of the world other than the news stations they prescribe to, um, the social circles that they grow up in and oftentimes cannot escape. I grew up in a very conservative, very Republican environment, small Southeast Texas farm town. My grandfather was uh, as Reagan supporting, as Reagan supporting could be. And he was a lifelong card holding Republican. Um, Everyone else, Fell into play with him, and being the oldest grandchild, I was too. But I just saw inherent flaws in the um, in in the way some of that thinking took place. There was racism. There was bias. There was uh, um, there were a bunch of social norms I, I I could not agree with in my heart of hearts. And when I started traveling. I think you're beginning to hopefully hear a motif here, uh, uh, the idea of getting out. Um, I started traveling when I was 16 and seeing the world and seeing people and seeing poverty and seeing generosity and seeing um, experience, experiencing adversity. Uh, I started to realize that the world was not the way that the community around me at home Presented it to be, and I strove to learn more about the world, and to break the chains of um, conformity and limited-mindedness, closed-mindedness, even um, that 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 were the trappings of my small hometown community. I mean, three days after I left my, my uh, three days after I graduated, I left my hometown. And I've tried not to look back since, and um, the world has made me much wiser the more and more I've explored it. Things haven't always been good, but I don't think wisdom comes from always having good experiences. I think failure and adversity also teach you um, very important lessons about managing your position in the world.
0: Is there anything else you would like to add on the topic of echo chambers as a whole?
1: You know, more and more uh, it, this is a funny bend on the echo chamber. Uh It's like every day I'm waking up more and more to the reality of my favorite dystopian novels I grew up reading. Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, 1984. Um, they're, they're, they were so far-fetched then. And it's almost like an echo of what could have happened is now happening. Reading is incredibly important. I have family members who, who don't read one book a year. And they don't read the right books when they do read a book. Um, I, I believe cultural engagement is important. I believe removing blame from situations like the current pandemic we're under and how some people need to blame and so they're trying to point fingers and blame it at anyone they can to find some sort of excuse you know like like the explosion in, in viral numbers in, in the states uh, even though they can't practice social distancing habits or quarantine measures uh, as a whole group they still feel the drive to blame China for the virus when <sighs> it's a virus and <laughs> It happens and if you're not gonna follow the rules and if you're not gonna look at what New Zealand has done and what Taiwan has done and 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 what China has done uh, and and what other countries have done to really stem the spread of the virus uh, you can only own it and too many people are afraid to own that responsibility anymore the echo chamber is is I think until people start reading and start listening to the echoes and start really uh, interpreting those echoes and and contextualizing it in a modern sense or rationalizing um, their own biases uh, to some degree, I I I think um, what I've seen... Is, is uh, And sadly to say, and I, I'm not normally a pessimist, but I think it's only going to get worse because in the past 18 months to three years, I've seen more and more uh, um, almost a, a, a condensing of subcultural groups that are spiraling into their own echo chambers in order to have in order to feel some sort of validation and that's not going to help solve larger world issues Um, you're not going to stop a pandemic by blaming italy or blaming china or blaming your neighbors or blaming um uh, medical corporations for not producing enough face masks, or people need to take more personal responsibility. And when, and part of that responsibility is engaging in practices and following instructions, but also thinking about consequences and thinking about others. And that's hard for humanity because we are a very selfish, very almost narcissistic species and and that's sad to say there's there there are a beautiful few of us who live empathetic and compassionate lives and try to to live for others but a lot of humanity as a whole just wants to live life for for her himself and and it's it's that sort of greedy hunger that that feeds echo chambers
0: last question yes Um, do you think we're in our own liberal slash left echo chamber
1: to a very large degree I think we do well we are I mean and I recognize that I try to balance it out um I know I don't do a very good job of it (laughs) it's it's hard uh I try to at least concede to valid concerns on the conservative right um there are legitimate aspects of conservatism and, and to the political right uh, that that should be recognized. Um, I just feel that there is no moderate right anymore, especially in the United States and in other western nations. the right has the moderate right has moved to an extreme right, and the extreme right is now an alternative right. It's that alt right extremism. Um, I do believe that the left is developing a tone of of moderateness, only because it the left took moderate took the moderate position for granted when they had. A liberal president and liberal leadership they took it for granted and they swung too far left Um, there are still your factions of extreme left that are uh, trying to grow but until we work toward more of a modernization uh, or a moderate level of understanding um, yeah we're not going to even break our own molds and, and and we need to be more welcoming and accepting of others viewpoints unless those viewpoints are wrong and then they're just wrong <laughs> but I, I know that there are some left viewpoints that are wrong but oh my gosh uh, when, when when people can't read beyond their own limited biased news sources and they're not working towards any sort of moderation I digress. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Mr. Riddle, for your time.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Cynthia.
0: Hi, Mr. Harris. You came to our English class as a guest speaker to give context on the South African apartheid behind the play Master Harold and the Boys. How do you think literature, whether it be historical fiction or phantasmal plays, interacts with the contemporary phenomenon of echo chambers?
2: The mere Concept of an echo chamber itself is, uh, uh, in some ways, it might be a little bit of a misnomer. Okay, let me try and explain. So, on different forms, you go and you listen, and people tend to repeat the same thing. They put the same news on the same. So the same. If you're it's a more of a right-wing echo chamber, it becomes like centered of people sending Fox News, this and that and that. But I have noticed something quite interesting in amongst those things. What happens is you will get and what I would say is an infiltrator and they arrive like this comet blazing its tail into your echo chamber and they start posting many many different kind of their own viewpoints so i mean i'm not I'm not adverse to it myself where suddenly you're in a something that seems to be echoing around one of the Fox News things or something. And then you just drop in a CBS article or you drop in a Guardian article. And it's almost like some people might like see it as the view of trolling and to some degree, but it's not. It's in that regard in that because what it does is it creates almost as uh, almost as if somebody is tearing the echo chamber apart for a second, opens the curtain and you're those people that are so centered on kind of bouncing around the same information, they actually go out and they look at the Guardian, they look at the Independent, they look at CBS. And so that echo chamber is, uh, whether they look at it already, already, already with some sort of cognitive bias, doesn't matter. They are now forced out of that chamber to look at an ulterior perspective. So I'm not wholly convinced that echo chambers are as constrictive as what people say they are. And that goes for all forms of echo chambers, because there's always somebody within that echo chamber that is a subversive, that is trying to force something. So whether it's a right-wing person within a left-wing echo chamber or a left-wing echo chamber, whatever. So I think over the last say t- 3 months I've read a whole I've read a whole lot more very very strange articles that have appeared in what I would say mainstream or left wing echo chambers but I've now read articles that are way out of my comfort zone because I was in the so-called echo chamber. If I wasn't in the echo chamber, I think I would, I would have been just running along my own self-generated echo chamber. And I think people do have a, an ability to have a self-generated echo chamber. Left to my own devices without information, then I'll continually read the same thing. And I, I really, I think I really probably challenge myself. But once I'm put into a kind of a more forum-based echo chamber, I think to challenging yourself works a whole lot more. I've always preferred people or that one or two pers- people that actually are willing to challenge what I'm saying and just go along with what I'm saying. The people who go along with what I'm saying or those views are held commonly within that chamber. They're more scary than the person being the subversive. You know, I'm not, I don't have a canon view of literature. I, I watched other teachers talk about things in forums like, oh, why should we have Shakespeare? And then a torrid of abuse hits that teacher of we need to have Shakespeare because of this. And my, the reality is I, I do look at things and I think, well, what's the difference between Shakespeare and, I don't know, some writer from the Mary Claire or the cosmopolitan that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know people are going to say, oh, longevity. And we read this a hundred years later. Like, yeah, but what is the audience and purpose, and where are we today? What truly is greater, playing Beethoven or playing whatever it is, uh, Bad Bunny? What what gets to people now? I'm guilty of lacking poetry in my class because I may like poetry or may not like poetry, but uh, it's not something that is, but it's not something that appeals to my heart. So I think that appeals to the general populace's heart, unfortunately. So, you know, those poets out there can write their poetry and it's not something that the world is embracing and en masse. Gosh, I hate echo chambers. (laughs) Why? Because it helps stifle growth. It's a stifler of growth, but it all depends on how that echo chamber is constructed. If that echo chamber is constructed to allow ulterior views then it's fine. If it's not that is problematic. An example being there was a little discussion that I was involved with about a week or two ago and it was back and forth about the lockdown in South Africa and how it should be opened or closed. And people were putting their articles and I was putting my articles about different methods of lockdown and eventually one of the, the administrators on the forum said what well, can you please stop. And my reply was, well, if we stop, then we won't have a discussion. And then I was deleted (laughs) from the the group. And I, 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 you know, sometimes you'd think, oh, no, I felt like did I, I didn't feel my, there was no pride or anything. It was just a mere admission, acknowledgement in my head and my knowledge that this is a prime example when echo chambers are not a good thing, because once you close that down completely then you do have an echo chamber that is just merely parroting its own self-belief and i say thank goodness for social media at this moment in time because it allows in the on the whole that echo chamber or what started as an echo chamber to actually be a productive construct of knowledge production and that goes for literature as well and this is why when you ask the question about literature that there's such a crossover for me, it's, I don't, I'm finding it very, I find the more I get, the older I get, I find it very difficult to understand what literature really is. Because I, I read so much stuff all the time. And it's half of it will be considered as garbage. And somebody's saying, hey, have you read this biography of like, you know, Albert Camus? And then I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I'm actually reading a biography about this guy called Wayne Hussey, a guitarist who was an emo in the 80s. And then you get kind of like, but what this is Camus like like yeah why does it matter? Everybody's life has has a value and uh, even the lives that may not seem like they 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 have the, that that literary worth. No, they do. They do. Everybody's life has matter and uh, and that's why I struggle with echo chambers.
0: What do you think education as a profession has to play in sculpting, breaking, or reinforcing echo chambers?
2: Yeah. This very much depends on the ethos of the school or the institution. If you have a religious type school that is only hiring, for example, people of a particular faith or a particular political persuasion, then you are narrowing the chances of that uh, are John provocator, that saboteur of the echo chamber. And I, I do believe you will narrow the chances of that echo chamber actually producing knowledge. If you hired only Mexican chefs in Tacolicious, you would only have Mexican tacos. If you weren't open to the the concept that things can be created as a, a sense of shared knowledge and built upon, then you would never have a taco that's filled with Sichuan spiced meat that's enclosed with a, a hard shell taco and then enveloped in a soft shell Mexican street taco and tastes delicious. No. And so you have to be very careful about the ethos of what you're creating. Let me just use, I'm going to use SAS as an example in that regard. It's, it's a, it's a truly remarkable place in that it has, and it's English department is one of those, and I'm not going to blow the trumpet on this, but whether you have somebody who's a New Zealander or you have a, a Canadian or you have an American Each one of these these individuals bring baggage. They bring baggage in the sense of what they may have learned in their home countries or the countries they studied in, what how their language shapes their understanding and reasoning. So whether you've got this uh, Anglo-Saxon, like English that's going on from the Kings, Queens, English or the older forms or the American form, or you've got the Germanic form that comes from South Africa or The more germanic form because it's influenced by the kind of the dutch afrikaans kind of side of things you know even me i will default when i think about saying nasty things i i kind of default in my head to some rather nasty expressions in afrikaans which tells me that whether i whether it's me or not there's some default mechanism where i find something easier and you can see this in all in all people who speak different languages they have this these ideas or these concepts that influence them. So to to some degree language influences the way you act or behave. And some degree your upbringing does, and some degree where you are does. And all of this is, is all all in a sense, all of this in a sense is baggage and it's all brought to your classroom. So when you as a student go from grade nine and you're being taught by, I don't know, Mr. Parker, for example, let's just use him. There's a certain amount of baggage that he brings. And I'm I'm not saying baggage in a negative sense at all, not one bit. And then you move from that from number from grade nine to grade ten in your Mr. Gertzfeld's class or something. And then you've got another set of baggage you're having to do. And then you move from there to say my class. And then I bring another set of baggage. And from there to Mr. Malone's or so. Or even within the same year you make those changes. Or as Mr. Gertzfeld did with you guys, let's just take Harrison bring him in for this class. And I'm a big fan of taking the if I can. So in my language class, I had Mr. Fan from middle school and have a chat to my class that's the beauty of the SAS model is the fact that the echo chamber that's been created is a rather large one that is filled with lots of different people as opposed to the echo chambers in education that are constrained by certain things whether they be a political ethos or a religious ethos so I've I've always been a rather large fan of more inclusive maybe that's a south african thing i don't know maybe that's my reaction to being south african maybe that's my reaction to being to looking back at my past and saying "I, i need to juxtapose my own upbringing because it was just so not right that educational echo chamber that i lived in where history began in 1652 when jan van ribik and his wife arrived in south africa maybe That has influenced the way I think today in that regard of it has to be different. It has to be different because it can't be the one story. There are multiple stories. I bring a story to class. You guys bring a story to class. We all bring a story to class. And those stories are a bit of shared knowledge. I spend a lot of time asking you guys about your lives, where you're from, what you do, what languages you speak at school, what do you speak at home? Because every single one of you is not a matter of saying, oh, you all have value. No, as an educational product to keep us going forward, we must be aware that we all bring a story to class. and That story all has value. And to build on that, it's like that's what keeps my brain going. I could never stand in front of a class and just teach without knowing who you guys are, because that's just not that's just not education for me. That's just hearing myself talk. That's a bad echo chamber. That's kind of how I see education when it comes to that educational echo chamber. You have to be inside that. And then we have a multicultural, multiracial, multinational, multiethnic, multi-religious echo chamber that works fine. But the minute we shut that down in any form, we limit the, the who can teach what and where, we limit what we understand about our, our, our students. We limit what we understand about our, our teachers. That's where a problem arises.
0: You talked about um, echo chambers needing to have a saboteur of some sort coming. Is that right? Yes. Do you think teachers can be a saboteur in a uh, constrained environment?
2: Yes, they can. It's a it's a th- it's a it's a thin line. There's a reason why people humanity is taught at an early age is that which we teach can have a long-lasting effect on us. There's a reason why many religious institutions have Sunday schools or schools by which young people can go to. There are reasons why there is very little. People don't say, oh, you can only go to a church Sunday school after the age of 16. There's a reason why countries don't like people to vote if you're under 16. And that's why that idea of the the educational saboteur has to be there has to be a little bit of careful management in this in the sense that they it's not a a run rampant freedom to turn your class into this these crazy saluting people. Uh, A good example of that is The Wave. The film The Wave. (laughs) you know about it? Yes. You know about it. And this idea of the Stanford prison kind of uh, we have to be very careful because We do have, humanity has a herd mentality. But yes, teachers can be. And it's very, and they are naturally in some ways. So years later, you will look back and you go, oh, I want, people might ask you that question on a dinner table. They say, so when you're a student, does it, was there any teacher in your life? And even me, I look back and I go, was there any teacher in my life? Uh, Yeah, there was one, but I don't actually know why. His name was Mr. Knox. He was an English teacher, but he smelled of cigarettes because he always my classroom was at the time was a prefabricated building. It's like those places they put migrant workers to sleep in. It was that hollowed out. And that was my school classroom. It was on bricks. And he used to sneak out and, and he used to smoke and then he used to come back to the class. And he used to put something on the board. And he used to say, OK, this is what I want you to see and uh, just read this and read page, whatever, and go look at this article in the library. And, and then he used to go outside and smoke again. And I used to always think, like, dude, you're not teaching anything. You're not doing anything. And half the kids, we were boys. There was 13 boys in the class and there was two girls. And it was, uh, this was 7F or something. And half the boys were like 19 or 20 years old. They'd failed every year. We were like the worst class. We were like the, the, the reform class, the class that just wasn't getting anywhere. We'd, we weren't allowed to do woodwork or metalwork or anything. Cause they had weapon, they had like machinery. You could use as weapons against each other, this kind of stuff. And I used to, I used to look at this and think they all, we're all fighting and beating each other up in class and, and Mr. Knox is doing nothing. He's given up, but he hadn't given up. That's the thing. He hadn't given up. And if you went to look at what he was asking you to read or the passages that was, it was provocative stuff made you want to learn about language, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he'd already made up his mind in this terrible way, this Darwinian way that it wasn't going to be at work teaching people. So anyone who wanted to be taught, they could be taught. And so in some ways I'm, I'm thankful for him because it may be go and look at things and go, well, there's something else. So can we, people be provocative? Yes, they can, but it's, it's a dangerous thing. But it's a natural thing as well, because every one of us will look back and go, ah, oh, that teacher, yeah, I, know. I remember that teacher, they were good. And then you'd ask yourself why they were good, because it wasn't good because they put content knowledge in your head, no. It was good because they instigated critical thinking in some way. That's the provocateur, the one who can instigate critical thinking, not about content knowledge. Do I think it's a good thing? Yes, I think it's a good thing, but do I? there needs to be a careful thought behind what's going on, because it's... Uh, Minds are very easily influenced, as we see Donald Trump being elected, you yeah. know, or Boris Johnson, or other things. And sometimes they can be detrimental to the way of, to human to us. I'm trying to remain positive here, I, I, I just I wish I could give you a, a black and white answer, but I just don't know. It does and it doesn't. It just depends how it's managed. You know, it's like lockdowns in society. It depends on how does it, it good for stemming a virus. It just depends how it's done. Are you doing it with a human face or are you doing it in a malicious intent you know and what is a uh, provocateur doing is he doing it for himself or is he doing it for others and we've seen the the terrible 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 kind of uh, consequences of the that the cult teacher can have. Yeah.
0: Thank you for your time Mr Harris.
2: Yeah no, I've talked the hind leg of a donkey.
0: Today we covered echo chambers from ourselves to politics to the classroom. We looked at ourselves and our own echo chambers and resolved to calm our egotistic selves and seek to understand rather than immediately question opposing viewpoints. Now for today's recommendation, if you are looking for a more in-depth look at echo chambers through politics and media perhaps, I'd look into a book called Echo Chamber, Rush Limbaugh and the Conservative Media Establishment by Kathleen Hall Jemison and Joseph N. Capella. It has more of an academic, formal tone, so it might come off as more of a heavy read, but it's interesting nonetheless. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Quotidian Musings, and we'll see you sometime soon. In the words of Jeanette Winterson, toodles!